guys this morning. Welcome to Refuge. Hope you're well. Okay, yeah, you're, you are welcome. The rest of you, get on about yourself, all right? All right, thanks. Hey, I want to invite you to grab your Bible this morning, and we're going to be in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. I want to continue along in this uh, sort of journey that we've been in, digging into the pillars, digging into like the essentials of what distinctively marks us as Christians. What is it about us that makes us different in a world that is filled with many religions, many worldviews? What makes us Christian. And not only that, but like what what is the Christian church stood on since the resurrection of Jesus? What is the church believed and what does the Bible say? If you'll recall, the Bible is our authority that we have to start from. And from there we went through the doctrine or the theology of God. We went through the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so today I want to look at one of our pillars as a church and I think one of the most crucial things for us to understand is what does it mean um, to be saved? What is salvation? Uh, The Greek uh, thought of this is soteriology, which is just the study of salvation. And so you're going to get an incredible lesson this morning on, on soteriology, the study of salvation, the doctrine of salvation, what it is, and what does that mean And in fact, we'll probably take this into two weeks because there's so much in this doctrine. In fact, I could have taken all of these things and made them their own series, uh, but we could do that. Uh, You know, I'm going to be here for the rest of my life, so we've got nothing but time together. And uh, I really want you to see uh, our need for it and really how much you have to do with salvation. So what, uh, why salvation? And then what do you have to do with salvation? And spoiler alert, really nothing. <laughs> it's going to be the work of God in you. And, and I think what Paul here in the book of Ephesians is going to lay out for us, really some damning news to us. It's a universal indictment upon how you are outside of Christ. It is going to be a comparing and contrasting. It is going to be the gospel, this bad news versus the good news. And in this doctrine of salvation, we will find some hope. And really, my hope is that we could just leave here just breathing a little bit better and having a weight lifted off of us that is just, it's God doing all of this work in us, and we just sit and rest in it. So Ephesians chapter 2, if if I were to memorize a portion of scripture, and particularly in the, the, the land we live in, I would I would offer this suggestion and have you memorize this portion of scripture, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, because it is some of the best news that you will ever hear. At first, it's not going to be. At first, it's going to sound like Paul is just is a depressed man and he needs a hug. But it's not going to end there, I promise. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working and the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them and our fleshly desires, carrying out 
the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of our time for us to do. I want to just kind of take apart this portion of scripture, but before we do that, let's pray one more time over the reading of God's holy word. God, again, I thank you for this word in particularly, Lord, one of my favorite passages, because in it, we find life, in it, we find hope, in it, we find that we don't have to stay dead, but we could find life in you, Lord. So God, I just pray that though it is my words that we just heard, it is your word that just spoke and may that rest in our hearts and bring us to life. For those who are not in Christ, as this text just said, may they find that hope of salvation this morning because I know that your hand is not too short to reach to the darkest depths of this earth to save. We ask you to do this in your name, we pray. Amen. One of culture's um, biggest things that they, they throw at us is that you're not the problem, right? Like everybody around you is the problem. And it's probably something your mom lied to you about when you were a child. You know, you come home from school and you, you talk about an issue and they're like, oh, not my child because your child is perfect. And so you grew up thinking, maybe you did, you grew up thinking, well, then you're not the problem, and we've lived our lives, and particularly what culture has kind of fed to us is that it's, you're not the problem, it's everybody around you who is causing you to do these things. Paul would differ in that type of philosophical thinking when he would say that you were dead. You were dead. You are the greatest problem that you will ever face in your life. There is not another person that will deceive you, that, that will leave you hanging other than yourself. Is that right? Like, I fool myself more than anybody else will. I disappoint myself more than anybody else does. And Paul here is trying to, like, give us this glimpse of this reality of the human nature that it's not culture's problem. It's not a problem of ethnicity. It's not a problem of war. It's not a problem of a lack of education. You are the greatest threat to yourself. It's not your parents. It's not your children. Although sometimes I would defer, I would differ with that. Uh, It's not the world around you that you think is out to get you. Paul wants us to emphatically understand the greatest issue that you are facing. You, you are this problem. 
And not only are you a problem, but then Paul says that you were dead, right? Not that you were like this semi-alive person, not that you were like this half good, like half bad person, but Paul pretty much lays out this universal indictment, which is pretty damning to all of us, that you were dead. Have you ever been around someone who's dead? It's not pretty. It's, it's sad. It's, it's traumatic. I mean, I've, I've, like, I've literally been into scenes um, as a pastor, you get called into scenes where, where someone had taken their own life and I'd watch them being wheeled out of their house. Like I've seen, I've felt the weight and the depravity of death. And think about that. Paul's not saying that you are semi-good, you're semi-bad, you've, you've got a little issue here, you've got a little issue there. No, he's saying you are, you are the equivalent of being dead outside of Christ. And it's not just people around you, it's everybody. It's not just the people who you think are the worst kind of people. It's not the Hitlers of the world. It's not all of these just evil people that we see. It's the human condition of all of us outside of Christ. You are dead. And what were you dead in? Like, just being a bad person? Just, you know making one bad mistake. No, you're dead in your sins. This is uh, incredible for us is that sin is not just an outward action, uh, but it is an inward essence. It is the state of our nature. It is going against anything that is the way of God. That is what sin is. If we wanted a doctrine of sin, that's what we would say sin is. It is not this external behavior. It is an essence of who we are. It is an essence of your heart. And it is anything that defies the way of Yahweh. It's anything that defies the law of God and anything that says my way is better than God's way. That is what sin is. And so now we are dead in this depravity, in this whole idea of sin, and we're dead in it. He's giving us this universal indictment and this terrible, tragic news, right? Like, it just seems like, wow, Paul, you are, your pastor encourager today. We really appreciate this message to the church of Ephesus and the church universal. And, and I want to just come to you, church, and say that you are just a bunch of dead people in your sin. Now go. Thankfully, he doesn't do that. And, but he does he does kind of dig into our hearts just a little bit more in verse two when he says, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. That's kind of like this jab that he's saying, like uh, against culture. You know, he's like, he's like, you guys think that culture, you know, they're teaching you how to live and you're thinking that that's the way you ought to live. You're thinking that the way of the world is, the, is how you should live. But Paul is like doing this reversal on them. Like the world does not know how to live. The world gives us this impression, you know, come, come live our way. And, and the motto and the mantra of the world is you do you. And you can live this lifestyle. But that is opposed to the way of God in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. So this sin that you were entrapped to, you were just entrapped to the ways of culture, the ways of this world. 
And so there's this problem. There is what, what seems like we've been at almost every week where you get this, this view of the justice of God, the justice of who he is. And if we leave it right there, you know, we're in no condition to raise our fist at God and be like, you know what, how dare you be just a just God? I mean, God can do what he want to do. But thankfully, he doesn't end there. Thankfully, there's no period and there's no ending to the story in Ephesians. Thankfully, there isn't just this, all right, you're dead in your sins. You're living like the world. And that's it. Thankfully, that's not it. And that's the beautiful picture of who God is. Because God is just. Yes, he is just but he is also filled with mercy and love and grace and compassion. And this is the gospel message. That's Galeon message of, of this presented to us bad news. You are dead in your sins. There's nothing you can do about being dead. You're just dead. So that presents this problem. And now we have to find out if there's a resolution to this problem. And this is the power of salvation. And Paul wants us to see this spiritual weight of your human nature. Because if you don't, if you miss that, then you'll never rejoice in the freedom of salvation. If you miss this is who you are outside of Christ, then you'll never walk in this freedom of salvation. That's why it's so important we get this. We understand what is salvation and why it's so important for us. It's important for us because it has revealed who we are. Romans 3, that all have sinned and all have been convicted. So we're all under this weight. We're all under this judgment. We're all under this very, very bad news. But then the justice of God has been revealed to us. And now we see not just his justice, but you get a glimpse of his graciousness and his mercy and his mercy. Look at verse, verse four, but God, right? Let me just stop there. And and I know we got a whole lot more to go. So maybe we won't go an hour today. We'll see. Uh, Because God didn't leave us there without a way out. So he's saying, but God, there's, there's going to be this way out when sin enters into the world. In Genesis chapter 3, we see now that the, there are prophecies and these shadows of a Savior that is going to come. And we get glimpses of the Messiah who's going to come to us in the Old Testament, and particularly in Isaiah uh, chapter 43. I think I read this a few weeks ago. You are my witnesses. This is Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration. And my servant whom I have chosen <clears throat> so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. No God was formed before me and there will be none after me. I, I am the Lord. Besides me, get this now, there is no savior. I alone declared, saved and proclaimed and not some foreign God among you so you are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration, and I am God. It's also some incredible 
Trinitarian doctrine going on in there, but this, this, these prophecies echoing throughout all of the Old Testament are, are pointing us to there is this hope that, that yes, there is this universal indictment that sin has come into the world and has captured everyone. There are these prophetic messages going out through the Old Testament that this is not the end of the story. Like, yes, sin is heavy. Yes, we are dead in our sins, but there is a hope to come. And so Paul is reminding us that this sin and your dead steep state is not going to keep you from making you alive. Again, when he says, but God, who is rich in mercy, but God who fulfilled on those promises that he made in the Old Testament, but God who's merciful and filled with great love. Paul is perhaps referencing the name of God when God revealed his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 34 when he said, the Lord, the Lord is a God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sins. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. We're saved by grace. I love the force of this. It, he's given you this, this human condition that you're dead. And so if there's an invitation for salvation, what can a dead person do? Nothing. I mean, I, I've seen some pretty crazy things in my life. Never have I seen a dead person get up. Never. There's this power on display here that God is going to give a mercy and a grace that is going to birth something inside of a dead person's heart that is going to make them come alive. And I love how this pass is used in past tense, but God who has made us alive. We used to be in this graveyard. We used to be under the wrath of God. We used to be dead in our sins, but now we are flourishing. Now we are alive. We are granted his love and now we have light and now he saved us. And I love what the text says here. Now he sits, Christ sits with us. Like we are seated with Christ. All right, little little Bible trivia for you. Where is Christ seated at right now? The right hand of the Father. Where are you seated at? You're in Christ. At the right hand of the Father. You see what God has done for you? You have access to him this hopelessness in verse one stands in stark contrast to what God has done for us. God has solved the greatest dilemma of the universe. He has solved the greatest issue right here in just a couple of words, but God who is filled with mercy and is a God of compassion and love. He has saved you by grace like, this is the most miraculous and the best news that you could ever hear. 
In fact, if you are a believer already, like you just need to be reminded and let this just soak into your hearts this morning that Jesus went down into the grave and rescued you and came alive and now we can be alive in Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus. That we were dead in our sins. There was no way out. There's no hope except God who, who gave us this invitation and who is the one who raised you from the dead. This is not Christianity 101. Well, I thank you for the gospel, pastor, but can we please graduate into something more deep? Can we get into some, some theological construct that makes me feel smart? No, you don't graduate from this. This is something that you got to be reminded of daily, and it's something that I treasure, and I remind myself on the daily that I was dead in my sins. It wasn't me who, who decided one day, you know what, I think I'll be alive tomorrow. You know what, tomorrow I think I'm going to stop being dead. That's it. I didn't have the capacity to do that. Left to my own demise, I'm going to continue in my free will of sin. That's what I'm going to do. So it took the hand of God to do something inside of me and he's going to give it to us right here in verse number eight, which is going to cause a lot of questions that we'll have to answer. For you are saved by, what is it? Grace. And it's, it's through faith. And pay attention to this. And it's not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. And in verse 10, we'll get to this a little later, for we are his workmanship created in Christ <coughs> Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So, so grace is the answer, right? I mean, grace is, is what gives us the freedom. Grace is the answer to the question, and it is the solution to the greatest problem. How does God make us alive? How are we saved grace. It's, it's that easy. The unmerited favor of God, something that you can't earn. It's this free gift that God gives us that we can't definitely earn, or we definitely don't deserve it. Why? Because we're hostile. We're, we're sin. We're dead in our sins. And then grace is presented to us. That's how we are saved. And it's not grace plus anything that you can do. It's, it's just that. It's, it's just grace. It's not grace plus anything you can do after all you do, whatever you do. It's, it's just grace. The Apostle Paul is destroying this notion of salvation by works. The Bible is very uh, crystal clear on that issue that we're saved by the grace of God, which is received by faith, and works play no part in any of this. And though that hand, or, or that faith, is that hand taking hold of what Jesus did, it's grace through faith. It's an attack on any idea of thinking that you've, you've got to be a good person. It's this culture of do-goodism. It's this culture of, well, if I just uh, live my life to the best that I can, 
then God will reward me as if God is like your banker or if, as if God is your butler, as if God is up in the heavens waiting for you to do something so that he could rain down a blessing upon you. That's the culture of do-goodism. And by, and by the way, like, how do you measure being good? What, that you weren't a turd to your spouse this week? Congratulations. What, you wanted an award for that? You want me to give you a trophy? You know what? I, I didn't look at pornography. Yay for you. I, I, didn't, I didn't scream at my kids. Oh, congratulations. That makes you a good person? What, that you have a better job than your neighbor? You know how ridiculous this starts to sound? Like, so how are we measuring what is good? You, you just can't. It's exhausting. Because at what point does it qualify you as being the ultimate standard of being a good person? Where does it end? It doesn't. Because then you're going to have Billy across the street who's got it way better than you. And then you're like shaking your Billy, how dare you be better than me? You know, it's, just, it's just exhausting. And you can't. And Paul here, in this early church, is attacking this idea of this pattern of just being a good person is, is what it's going to take. And it's so crazy to me, like, how this was written 2,000 years, and nothing in our culture has changed. Oh, the Bible is just some piece of literature that's just irrelevant, and it has nothing to do with our culture. Well, why don't you read the Bible? And you'll find that nothing has changed. We're all still the depraved sinners that we were back 2,000 years ago. We're all still trying to measure ourselves up to our neighbor. And it falls flat. And Paul is attacking this idea of this cultural do-goodism in this early church. So measure yourself as being good. Where does it end? So it's not by good works, it's, it's by this gift. It's, it's a gift that God gives you. In John 6, 44, now this is going to cause some, some questions. So, if it is this gift and you really had nothing to do with it, then perhaps then God was completely at work in your salvation Perhaps then, if he is truly a sovereign God, then maybe he was sovereign in your salvation. If God has given you this gift of faith to believe in his grace, because what does a dead person do with an invitation? They do nothing unless God himself is the one who breathes life into them. So again, if you're like my my brain, that presents plenty of questions. And to cause more questions, let's read more scripture. Verse chapter, John chapter 6, verse 44 says this, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So again, there's this idea, Christ, God, raising people up. He gave them this gift of faith to believe, and they believe, and they are saved. And I'll be straight with you, because this really takes a big weight off of me. And if you could just, if you could capture this right now, this will take a weight off of you. 
that it has nothing to do with you, but it's been God all along who's been at work in you. That God has been the one who's raising you up, who raised you up. God is the one who is working in you, sanctifying you more into his image. Because if it was you, then man, you would look pretty spectacular. And again, how is that going to measure up to the righteousness and the beauty of a holy God? It won't. And this takes a weight off of me because I know if I was left to myself, man, I'd still be in the world. I would still be freely choosing sin. So I, had, I have to know that it was God's hand at work who was the one who gave me the gift of faith to believe and who raised me from death to life. I have to believe that he is in control over all things. But, according to Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, I also believe that whoever will may come to him. I also believe in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, that God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I also know that in Luke chapter 19, that Jesus was grieved because the sinners would not repent. I believe people are ultimately responsible if they do not repent. And I, I don't know how, nor do I understand the full weight of how any of this works or how any of these things are in sync with one another. And the reality is, I don't have to worry about it. And you don't either because you're not the sovereign one. God is. And I can't deny scriptures. I can't have faith to believe and be saved unless God is the one who gives it to me. But I also know that I, um, according to scripture, that I can't be saved unless I repent and believe. You, you feel the conundrums and the weight a little bit? Again, you don't have to understand it. It's God doing the work. It's God doing the saving. And I can just rest in knowing that I ha don't have to know everything. Now, this is an attack on my control, is it not? Doesn't it feel like an attack on, like, who's in real control here, God? I'll tell you what, I'm a very, well somewhat of a controlling person. Hello, my name is Matthew and I have problems. When, welcome, you're all in a safe place. The pastor has a lot of issues. I, I, I love to be in control. I, I like to, maybe it's not I love to be in control. I just like to know what's happening and like what's the outcome of this situation and I want to know that outcome is going to take place. Well, in light of my life, God has done a lot of removing of any control that I thought I would ever have. Anything. Name it. Oh, you have control of your car. Bam! Gear rams right into it. You know, you have control of your children. I'll show you. And God has been 
doing a sovereign work in my life that I would want him not to do because I love the feeling of I know the outcome of everything. But I'll just be straight with you. It does just cause me to rest all the more. And knowing that I didn't have control over anything in my life, it's the sovereign God who has control over all things. And if he had control and sovereignty over even the work of salvation in your life, I mean, my prayer would be that you would just rest in that and, and don't go along the path of always wanting that control. It's an American lie to you, right? It's a cultural lie for you to think that you can be in control of all things. Friends, God is in control. Rest in the sovereignty of his control. Now, so what does that mean? So does that mean that I don't have to do anything? Because that's what you're saying, preacher. That means I don't have to go witness. I don't have to go evangelize. I don't have to go tell the neighbors that they're wrong and I'm right. I don't have to do anything, right? Isn't that what we're saying here? Well, you've just missed verse 10. Apparently I did too. I can't find it. There it is. <laughs> For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Yeah. Which, by the way, remove a little bit more of your control. God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Works, not the root of our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. And this is the delight of our faith. If you walk out of here and you're not filled with more joy or you're not filled with more worship, then you've, friends, you've just missed the gospel. This gospel message should, should drive us to engage in Christ all the more. This gospel message and, and this sovereign God should cause us all the more to engage in culture. It should cause us to move into good works. I mean, if, if God is in completely control, like, what do we do? Are we robots? Are we like puppets on a string? Are we supposed to just like, you know, just stay silent? No, not at all. God has created you to do something for good works. Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Doesn't sound like a robot to me. Jesus instructs his, or commands rather, his 11 here to go make disciples. We see the work of salvation throughout all of the New Testament in 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 3, verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul being the one saying, I planted, um, I, I sowed the seeds, I, I preached the gospel. Apollos came and he watered and he and he. And he preach the gospel, preach the gospel. And, and we did our work and then we saw God do the raising from death to life. In Romans chapter 10, how then can people call on the one who have they not believed and how are they to believe in him who they have never heard of? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching, proclaiming the good news? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So do you have work to do? Yeah, you do. We have a role in all of this because that is God's method of operation to use the voice of his men and women to go and proclaim and to be in the town square and to to engage in the policies and to engage in your neighborhoods and to engage in your schools and to engage in your jobs and you be the one who is pressing out and pushing out the message of Jesus Christ. He's commissioned you to do that. You are the one who God has called to engage the lawmakers and and the policies that are being um, written in our state and on a national level. Like God has commissioned you to to carry out that good news message. That Caesar's not God. That the president's not God. That Putin is not God. That any worldly dictator is not God. No president, no congressman, no senator is not. They are not God. They will bow their knee to King Jesus. And boy, would that ruffle some feathers. That ruffles feather with me, like, because, I, again, I want that control. God has commissioned you, created you for good works, And here's what I know in all of this, that there's a promise of assurance in this message of salvation in Romans 8, 37 through 39, that neither life nor death nor anything at all, including man's sin, will, desire, actions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, can separate you from the love of God. If God has saved you, then he'll keep you in his hand. And according to John, again, chapter 10, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch any of his sheep out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So man, that's a reason to rest, right? That's a reason that we can walk out of this room rejoicing and celebrating and just breathing in the grace and the mercy of God. Because if he's got me, then he's going to hold me. He's going to hold me fast. And he's called me, yes, to persevere. He's called me, yes, that I've got work to do. But in the end, God is the one who is holding me. Holy Spirit inside of you is his one who is causing you to continue in this work. Man, let that, let that just take a weight off of you this morning. But God, who is rich and mercy, filled with everlasting love, made us alive. But God, who is full of mercy, full of steadfast love for his people throughout generations after generations, has called the dead to come to life. And God, who is rich in mercy, full of love, may he raise the dead in this room and calls us to be alive in him. And may he keep you and hold you in his hands. 